0: Welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of the Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Dead Meat Pete. Dead Meat Pete is a horror adventure series about background characters in a cheesy late 80s horror movie. The show was created by Chris Gervais, who also voices the title character. Pete is a nobody whose entire purpose is to die in the opening five minutes of a monster movie, over and over again. This cycle is interrupted with the appearance of Axel, who has escaped from a different movie. He tells Pete that if he can kill the monster before the protagonist can, he will be freed from his cycle and sent into a new film with a new monster and a new task. Hoping to find his fictional family in some other movie, Pete sets out to do what he was never written to do. In the first episode, Bloody Bones, Pete is freed from his fate by Axel, who convinces Pete of the truth about his nature. In the second episode, The Unholy Face, Pete and Axel investigate the protagonists, a group of high school kids, and plan their next move. Listeners are advised there is coarse language and gory sound effects in this episode. I spoke to Chris remotely from his home in South Carolina. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist, a writer, and a creator.
1: Yeah, I love stories. I love ideas. I have been consuming them my whole life. I think about them all the time, and it feels really good when. I make things out of them out of my own ideas. I have a lot of skills that I use to do that. Uh filmmaking is my favorite. I can't deny that, but uh podcasting, audio drama is boy it's a close second.
0: Yeah. Have you always been kind of an artsy person when you were a kid? Did you did, were you telling stories back then?
1: Oh yeah. I've I've never had anything else. I was just kind of a a weird kid. I um you know just very much part of that Spielberg generation and uh (laughs) the the bridge between me running outside to play pretend to me saying like uh, well i made up a story about whatever blah 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 i don't remember that bridge it just was one thing for me i've i've been kind of the same person since i was roughly six years old
0: (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) just a quick side note i'm going to age myself a little bit here but uh, we saw we saw spielberg's close encounters of the third kind and uh, there was a song they released on 45 it was the theme but it was orchestrated and kind of disco it you know kind of thing cool I, that's so I cool Played the hell out of that thing and i remember once i was this kid just this kid right and i took my little portable record player outside and i turned it all the way up and i played it as loud as i could in hopes that the aliens would hear it and come oh that's so amazing god that's amazing right? yeah that
1: is awesome Wow. Good for you. That's a great idea. Even though, you know, obviously I, I don't know that they heard you, but I'm, I applaud no, well, that I, I'm, I'm kidding you.
0: It, it takes a long time for the sound to travel. So maybe, maybe they're
1: on their way. So who knows? It might uh, be vibrating out there somewhere. Just waiting.
0: You say you're a filmmaker among other things. Did you go to school to study film?
1: No, I actually didn't. I went to school for like web design, which is Still a part of actually my nine to five. But two of my very good friends did go to film school. They went to the University of South Carolina for film. They came home and taught me how to do it. <laughs> and I'm really grateful for that. And that they remain the little group that I still, you know, uh, two weekends ago, we were making a short film. We we still do it.
0: What is your favorite part of filmmaking?
1: I think it is probably someday going to be the feeling of being in a theater with an audience uh, reacting to your movie because I've experienced mm-hmm. that at short film festivals and stuff, and it's yeah, you know we make no budget movies, then we they're five minutes long, and so I get these brief glimpses of an audience reacting to something I did. And man, let me tell you, I've never done heroin, but uh, it, <laughs> I can't imagine, I cannot imagine that there's anything in creation that feels better than making a thing and watching it in a theater and feeling these people gasp or laugh or applaud, or just feeling the energy of a room reacting to a thing that you made. There's nothing like it. Okay,
0: so I I used to do live theater as well. And that's one of the things that you get in live theater is you get an immediate reaction from the audience. You know, there's, Mm, you can instantly mm -hmm. tell how they feel about what's going on. And you don't Mm -hmm. get that in film until the screening, right? I I think it's even worse with audio drama. You know, you you, kind of labor in the dark and you hope that people will give you feedback.
1: That's a good point because I really enjoy it when people say things that I want to hear, but I don't get to experience it with them. Streaming and watching things at home has become such an important part of how people view things now that that communal experience happens less than it used to. So I guess I have to get used to just hearing the afterthought about it. (laughs) I think a lot of this comes from, for me, both of my parents were really into movies, especially my mom. My mom cut hair for a living and she was off on Mondays. So sometimes I would get called to the principal on a Monday thinking I was in trouble and I'd get there and my mom would be standing there and she'd be like, let's go to a movie. Nice. Yeah. And that's my mom and she is amazing in that way. But, you know, I grew up sitting between my mom and dad in a movie theater and feeling what they felt when they cried and I could feel their emotions and when they laughed, I felt that with them, the way that my dad would, when Indiana Jones would pull out his gun and shoot the sword guy. My dad would just laugh with his whole body. That was so great to him. And I knew he felt like Indiana Jones. I could feel what my dad felt. And so I think that's what gave me this bug to like share emotions of stories with other people. And I am am beyond it. It has programmed my life. I have sacrificed much to chase it. Uh, It is who I am, that feeling.
0: How did you go from making short films with your friends to making audio drama?
1: Yeah, that's an easy answer. So we don't have any money. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and I want to, uh, you know, like I said, I'm a Spielberg kid, you know, that, that all those movies programmed my life. Those movies are not really about two people sitting in a room talking about their divorce. Uh, you know, they're about magical items and they're about these worlds full of ideas and huge images and stuff. That's just so fun to me. It's so inspiring to me. And I do think that the character stuff is what Pulls us into a story, those small moments that are sort of like two people in a room talking about divorce. Those are the things that open the door to stories. But beyond that door, for me, the best thing that can happen is this crazy, uncanny fantasy adventure stuff. And when you don't have a lot of money, that's impossible to do. I mean, some people have figured that out. To be honest with you, I spent, I've been doing film eh, 12, 13 years. And I spent a long time beating myself up about that old adage that, well, if you can't tell a great story with $30, then I guess <laughs> you're not a, you're not a storyteller. Mm. And that is what it is. And I told myself that lie for a long time. It was actually a friend of mine during quarantine did a podcast where she just did a table read of a script and she just threw in music and sound effects. And I was shocked how much it felt like I was watching a movie just to mm. hear. The the descriptive lines read by a narrator. And so the first version of Dead Meat Pete, that's all I was doing because I'm I'm a screenwriter. That is, I should be clear, the highest, best use of my time is actually screenwriting. And I've actually had the most success as a screenwriter. The first version of Dead Meat Pete, I was just straight up using traditional, blunt, to the point. Pete gets out of his car, walks over to the road, looks across the street. There is this thing there, blah, blah, blah. And then it was Micah, who is soft neon, who does the score for Dead Meat Pete. He was the first person to be like, that's not good enough. Like people will check out. You need to rewrite this thing like it is a book from childhood that is just very sugary, softly giving you these visuals and a prose kind of narrative. My inspiration became those old, so I will age myself now too. But I had a 45 of Return of the Jedi that had, you would put on it. It was like, it was the music, it was the sound effects, but it was like some guy being like a spaceship moves across the advance of space. That was my goal was to make that. Tell me a little bit about Dead Meat Pete. It's about a background character in an 80s horror movie who discovers that if he can avoid being this first kill in the opening moments of the movie and defeat the monster, he'll get spit out of that movie into other horror movies on and on trying to defeat monsters before the heroes just so he doesn't die and get absorbed into the movie. It's definitely a big payoff to the way I feel about storytelling, about world building. I was front and center for when anthology storytelling, which came back huge about hmm. 10 years ago, uh, that happened huge in the mid 80s. That was this big wave of the Twilight Zone movie, Creep Show, Amazing right. Stories, the 80s Twilight Zone TV series, Monsters, Tales from the Dark Side. And even and this was a massive thing for me was the Disney Sunday Night movie would open with clips from movies you hadn't seen, and it was like interspersed with like Hundred One Dalmatians and uh, uh, the Black Cauldron, but then these like cheap movie of the weeks. (laughs) But the thrill to me, way more than the thrill of whatever they were showing, was that sense of I'm opening this vault and I'm seeing all these ideas, I'm seeing all these passageways to all these worlds. That's so exciting. Urban Twilight Zone is drifting the eyeball on the opening door and th- the only specificity is that there are stories but otherwise the door is wide open and you will never fully feel disappointment here because there's another story and another story and another story and so that paired with how as a child when i was seeing horrible 80s horror movies which are very strange and uncanny because a lot of times they're made with people who don't have a lot of money and they're doing what they can but they're showing you some weird version of reality, which in and of itself, I felt that as a child. Fear has like, big a huge part of my life. And yet, for some reason, as a child, was exposing myself to a lot of horror movies. Again, it's part of that same deal. I was sensing there's a world of ideas out there that is infinite. It is transcendent of this world that I live in where I go to school and kids, you know, make fun of my clothes and that Mm. and I'm overweight and and that it's just I don't have a lot of fun there. What if there's all these other realities? And so I think that it's for me, that piece of Dead Meat Pete is a pure expression for me. It's how I feel about infinite worlds. Pete uh, represents some sort of amalgam of myself and my father. So does Axel mostly represents my father. Those are the two main characters.
0: I guess I'm curious, when you were thinking about telling an audio drama story, you're talking Spielberg and all that kind of stuff. So you could have done an action adventure, you could have done a pulp thing, but you chose to do horror. What is it about horror that attracted you for this project?
1: It's been said before that all stories are horror stories. There are other reasons to tell stories, but given that I am a very fearful person, I always have been, it makes total sense to me that our stories, much like our dreams, Are tools that we use to deal with fear. Hmm. Even if it is a story about two people in a diner talking about divorce, that is scary because life is scary. You know, I don't like this, to be honest with you. I don't like this about reality, but I do feel like I am always dealing with fear all the time. Hmm. And the relief from fear is a, a really powerful thing to me. And the synthesis of danger and conflict to me, it's just a very, very powerful storytelling thing. My favorite thing about that as a tool is its ability to recontextualize fear and danger and pain and empower us. Because once we recontextualize anything within a story that we own, we have some power over it. We have some agency. That's actually specifically what Dead Meat Pete is about. Pete is this person who gets killed he's nobody he doesn't matter to the people who made the movie he doesn't matter to the actor that portrayed him he didn't mean anything to anyone he had no control he had no agency the recontextualization of Axel showing up in his world and saying if you do this you will have agency you will have power to me reflects actual storytelling like if you yeah, yeah life is pretty hard it's awful it's scary for all of us but if you recontextualize it if you take this power and you tell stories that's magic and it's it's your g- greatest tool against all that scariness.
0: I'm thinking about horror, and there's, there's really different kinds. There's some that are sort of slow, creeping, moody kind of horror. But then Dead Meat Pete seems to be a story in the splatter horror genre, which is as yeah. uh, much about shock and laughs, mm. I think as opposed to just scares. It's about doing things over the top, trying to push the audience to a point where they go, oh my God, I can't believe that happened, which of course sometimes provokes laughter as well as screams. What is it about that in particular that appeals to you?
1: Was it George Carlin that said things go from bad to hilarious? (laughs) So within uh, danger, I think there is hilarity. I personally, when I feel intense pain, I laugh. It's not sardonic. I'm not being sarcastic. It just comes out of me when I'm getting stitches pulled out or whatever. There's an absurdity to danger and pain. It just seems so not part of our regular purview. As part of being a human and an American, I think you've probably seen the nuance and complexity of uh, evil deeds and people's violent tendencies and how it can sometimes be so complex uh, and easy as it might be to simplify others. I think deep down, you probably know that they're also a human and you're a human. So you're, you're maybe capable of the same kind of evil if someone hit a heartstring. I don't enjoy talking about it. I like the shark in the water who is transcendent of all that. That goblin creature in the darkness is not picking Fox News or CNN, you know, it just wants to eat you. And the simplicity of that is awful and terrible, but so simple and easily definable that it feels fantastic and it is kind of like eating a candy bar and so it is inherently fun even when it's awful even if it's you know pazuzu possessing a young girl but it is so clear there's no discussion to be had it is this evil demon and then here is father marin who no matter how you feel about the catholic church This man is standing here in the light, the hero ready to fight this evil thing. It is so simple. There's nothing to discuss. Let's go knock this thing over. That's fun. That's fun as hell, even when it's really serious. And so I think fun is this massive part of horror. And that is very much nailed in the 1980s with all that creature feature stuff.
2: He moved closer and saw that the thing in the gravel was a blood-soaked dog. (gasps) Oh, no, buddy, what happened? (sighs) Easy, boy. It's okay. Distracted by the whimpering dog, Pete hadn't noticed the massive shape that now stood by his truck, obscured by the headlights. It looked like some kind of animal, but not one you'd find in an encyclopedia. What the hell? The shadowy figure moved forward, on the attack. He sprinted for the workshop, but the monster was hot on his heels. He grabbed at his keys, but only managed to drop them. Desperate, he ran to the scrapyard, but the creature was too fast. Help! Help!
0: Let's talk a little bit about the show. One of the things I noticed about episode one, Bloody Bones, is it does have a very classic monster slasher opening. I was listening to it, and I'm like, I'm watching the first five minutes of a, of a horror film. You set up the heartstrings like he's talking to his little girl. He's a non-character, but you already established a little sympathy for him. Comes across the the mangled dog. He's trying to care for the dog. So we, we love that he's showing some compassion. And of course, he gets brutally murdered. That's classic. The second one seems like you were leaning into some of the tropes that are popular in horror films, especially about the teenagers who have to fight the monster. Right. And we have the classic archetypes of the school nerd, and then the popular girl, and then the bad boy. Talk to me a little bit about your use of tropes in horror mm-hmm. and what you like to do with them in your storytelling.
1: I want you to trust me that you are listening to something made by someone who is, A, your friend, yeah. and hopefully be beyond that, a smart person who knows what they're doing. Yet, I'm telling you a story that's happening within a world that I think should be kind of crappily written. And uh, <laughs> I want you to enjoy it. But you are in a movie from 1989 that I'm comparing to like, I really like uh, movies like Rawhead Rex. That movie is not well written. That is that is a fun movie that is horribly written. Those tropes do exist for a reason. I don't know. I sometimes wonder if they're things that matter to us. or Are they just things that were in a popular movie and they got spun out over and over? But either way, they're part of our brains now. <laughs> And it's funny you bring up the stuff with Pete and his little girl and Halloween. Uh, Again, I kind of needed to cheat because the truth is, if I was really doing this character, how I'm presenting it to you, I kind of actually need him to be a lot more weakly, sloppily written than that. I need to sort of maybe you don't care. But once in a blue moon, you'll find a writer that wants you to quickly care about that first kill. So I was cheating and saying that's what this is, even though generally you wouldn't.
0: It's a good way for the audience who is if they're already familiar with horror films it's a good Mm -hmm. way for them to slide right into that and go, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. And even kind of wink a little bit, along with you, that these are, you know, this is cheesy horror film kind of Mm -hmm. stuff, which I think works, right? I think it sets up our expectations. When Axel's going down and listing all the kids, I'm just kind of smiling along, going, oh, yeah, I've seen this movie before. Yeah, nice.
1: (laughs) I'm definitely speaking to horror fans with this.
0: What
1: am I supposed to see?
3: Northwest. I don't know where that is. Look for the damn soda machines. You see the kid with the glasses?
2: Axel moved the binoculars for Pete, leading him until he found what he was looking for. A nerd. Axel read from a notebook filled with his chicken scratch handwriting.
3: Name's Lewis. Love sci-fi and dress-up dragon games. Basically a nerd. He's the only one who knows how to kill bloody bones. Yeah, yeah, I see him. Now find the yellow umbrella. Group of rich kids. Girl in the pink sweater. All right. Oh, I see her. She's at a table with a bunch of other kids. Tammy. Popular girl. Louis is in love with her. Cause every nerd's in love with every cheerleader. Just how it works. Sorry, that's Tanya. Yeah, Tanya. Other end of the table. Big guy in Letterman's jacket. Eric. Stock jock character in Tanya's ex. They pretend they hate each other and have a will-they-won't-they deal. They will. Letterman. Yeah, got it. Right. Next, over by the gym. Girl with the black hair, black boots, black everything. Okay. Audrey, the spooky one. Her old man's a piece of shit, and he's going to die in a few hours anyway. And Q Jax.
0: Horror films are very much visual spectacles. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an interesting, difficult transition, I think, to make into audio. Oh, yeah. Talk to me about how you approached telling a horror story without the use of visual spectrum.
1: Ask anyone for their advice about making an audio drama podcast. I think the first thing they're going to tell you is to pick a story that makes sense as an audio story with people talking. And that is not what this is in any yeah. way, shape or form. I, I That is my conceit completely is that that is. I am coming at this from a person who's a very visual storyteller, but I feel like I am a good writer. And so I'm good at giving you visuals through words. And I also had a really good friend who has been teaching screenwriting at a university. And also he used to write children's programming to write on Backyard against. It's my friend Rodney, who is the narrator of Dead Meat Pete. And I knew I could lean on him. If you ask him what time it is, you can feel the warmth of his voice. He is inherently a bedtime story person and it's just it's part of him the idea that you're ever going to pull off a story where people are just like boy look at this giant monster would you yeah i know (laughs) Ah, as you can see his teeth are yellow and very long and pointy boy i tell you that's crazy looking huh um that's not gonna work like you're, you're gonna have to have a narrator that's the big part of this for me honestly if i didn't have rodney i don't know that i'd be able to make a show
2: as the pipes finish their scream and return to silence Metalhead heard a strange new sound that made him turn around again. Something rolled across the concrete, coming to a stop at his feet. The impossibly large, stunned eyes of his best friend looked up from the floor, a bug-eyed head torn from its body. Metalhead's eyes drifted from the severed head to the thing towering above it, The light from the flame danced over a demonic shape. A thing with eyes too knowing to be animal. A grin too wide, too full of needle teeth to be human. The unholy face of Bloody Bones.
1: You
0: also do a lot of music
1: and sound effects, too. A big thing I was able to bring to audio drama is... 13 years of making no budget films. You get in there to edit your short film and you realize, like, man, we did not get the coverage that really makes you feel that this thing was over here to the right of the world. And so let me goose you with this audio I put in the right channel that gets louder and creeps up. I was cheating a lot with sound and I was building emotions into those impulses of sound. Uh, And once I got to audio drama, that wasn't cheating. That was the actual skill.
0: What makes... A good horror film or a good horror audio drama
1: it really is about making you give a damn about the characters because if you can't do that then uh, there's a lot of horror movies out there that people really love that to me are just sort of demo reels for a, a makeup artist uh, oh, and yeah. uh and i love a lot of those i love a lot of those but the the ones that really 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 stick they're giving you some character. And I will say in horror, often that character is in the villain. The, the the actual creature is where the character is coming from. So whether it's the villain or or the main character, the hero, uh, whatever you got to do to make people give a damn so they feel stakes of some kind. Or actually, more importantly than that, they that they see their place in this story. You're offering people some sort of catharsis and pleasure from seeing themselves in this context and so that is why i think you need character to get there then beyond that just let it fly i think i think i think we all understand what makes exciting horror after that is cool scary gross stuff what do you struggle with time it's fortunately until i reach a place where i'm able to have this show pay the bills. It's like your dad was building a shed as you grew up, and it was slowly taking forever. That's what Dead Me Pete is. I work on it when I can. I have to pay the bills. There's just stuff that gets in the way, but I'm gonna be making this until they put me in the ground. So I've had to just let myself accept that. You know, it's it's unfortunate because there's this very business-minded side of me that is freaking out about how important it is to hit that episode once a week and never let them down and blah, blah, yeah. blah, and hit all these things. And that is so important. And, but you know what, I can only do what I can do. And, and I, and I don't want to get discouraged when I'm, you know, I get some huge freelance gig that takes up two months of my free time. I can't let myself decide that, well, the show's over because people forgot about me You know, I just have to keep going. So uh, yeah, yeah, I struggle with it like crazy. I don't have a lot of solutions for it other than to feel bad and depressed. Well,
0: <laughs> yeah, I get that too, though. <laughs> you said earlier that you consider yourself to be a fearful person. And I'm curious Uh if that fear plays a part in your artistic process.
1: Oh, yeah. That's sort of why I'm doing everything. I think it goes back to what I said. I've always drawn. There are a few creative skills I haven't sort of developed. Drawing was there from the beginning. I just never had a very easy time as a person in reality. Uh, I was an overweight kid. I was just like from a sort of working class family and uh, there was just all these social things that pushed back and I just didn't feel like I belonged or I fit in. And I think that uh, I don't have memories of not coming home and getting out a notebook or a stack of computer paper and dry and not feeling incredible and and feeling my heart just take off and soar. Uh, And I really do think it comes down to that sense of I'm creating a world. I'm making another world here. I have agency. I don't have agency and control. And anything else. I go to school and I am just, I am bare, uh, laid, you know, sort of naked against the world to hurl whatever the hell they want at me. And I got to take it. And then when I draw things, I decide, you know, I have agency, I have control. And so I think that's where that comes from that, that relief of the fear of, of what, of what the world might want from me and do to me. And so creativity offers me that relief.
0: Yeah. I I was a a same kind of kid. You know, I wonder like how many of us artist types, you know, (laughs) come out yeah, of, we, out of like middle school just really scarred
1: you know yeah we have to make our own world but this one yeah. wasn't nice to us and we want to we decide to make our own
0: how do you measure success
1: i wish that i could tell you uh that when i've made something i think is good then i i call that a success uh and i do feel that i certainly feel it when someone tells me they emotionally connected with something i made i absolutely feel that as success and I heard, I don't remember what's one of the interviews you did recently, someone talked about this exact thing that you can't escape that sense of like, well, yeah, but I want people to find this. I want people to feel this. And the more people who feel this, the, the more I feel like I've succeeded. And so maybe that's actually sort of the deal. Uh, I will also the, the idea that the more resources you get, the more you can make this world and consume it billberg yeah, in the 70s was given a blank check to go play in a sandbox you know and he made some amazing things but the, he and george lucas they were just having fun and playing in a sandbox with a lot of money which must feel yeah. very very good
0: yeah i wouldn't know but
1: um <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah
0: <laughs> you've got uh you've got your full-time job you talked about how um, time management is always a problem you talked about having the voice in your head that kind of nags at you When you don't get things done, I'm curious as to what keeps you motivated to come back and tell the story and and want to do a second season for that matter.
1: So again, that's a very easy answer and I I wish it was more pleasant, but uh, (laughs) I just have been doing it long enough now to know myself and to know I'm going to do it. I'm going to do these things. uh, And with the John Lennon quote about life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Well, uh, you know, I understand that logically, John. Uh, but I can tell myself to, to understand that and stop making plans and go live in the moment. But you know, what's going to happen. I'm going to get really sad. I'm going to do it again. And then I will have lost whatever time I wasn't doing it. And so I just wash my hands of that rhythm. And I say, get up, do it tomorrow, no matter what, because you are always going to doesn't sound very pleasant. It almost sounds like this acceptance of this giant boulder rolling at you to crush you or something. I, I don't know how to say it other than I know I'm going to so I might as well. That sounds awful.
0: No, it doesn't sound awful. I don't know. I'm getting shades of Pete who uh, yeah. is living this repetitive life and, and suddenly has an existential realization um, that he has mm. he has the potential to do something else and be something else.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that in Pete. The idea of someone who thought they were living a life and headed on a path and thought they were one thing and then boom, the rug gets pulled and and none of that stuff was there for them to go live. And it's something else now. This story came out of me dealing with similar things, of finding some pursuit to stick to, a gravity, a timeline to jump onto when this one I thought I was on dissolved and wasn't there. We just
3: jump around movies forever. Yeah, it's better than being stuck in the same death scene forever, which is what'll happen if you don't stop Bloody Bones by 2 a.m. But
1: how does this help me find my family?
3: Look around. The people who live in these worlds, they live in other worlds too. Your wife and daughter, they don't even show up in this movie. But they gotta be in something. But what if I just fix whatever made them disappear? Kit? you're not listening. They never existed here. You wanna see them? You gotta get out. I kill this thing, I'm out there with them. Easy peasy.
2: Pete walked down the aisle and studied the vibrant VHS horror covers. Hand-painted tableaus of screaming skulls and supernatural light. Clawed hands reached out. Dead eyes stared.
1: Okay, tell me what to do.
0: Dead Meat Pete is a love letter to the cheesy, splatter horror films of the 80s. Knowingly winking at their conventions while embracing them at the same time. But we also sympathize with Pete on his quest not only to find his family, but to find agency and control in his own life. You can listen to Dead Meet Pete on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories! It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rayel. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.